0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Acts chapter 13, beginning at the first verse. In the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They travelled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would uh, open our hearts, grant us an attentiveness to your word, and give us the help of your Holy Spirit to live this word. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much for the invitation to be part of your uh, mission Sunday and to be here for this weekend. I've thoroughly enjoyed meeting lots of folk and interacting and, and uh, having conversations about all sorts of things surrounding mission. Uh, so thank you very much indeed. And thank you very much also for your, your strong uh, partnership in the gospel with OMF. Uh, there's, there's been a long relationship between uh, this congregation and the work and ministry of, of OMF over the years. And I want to thank you for that partnership, and it's, it's, it's something to rejoice in. Uh, it's, it's great to be involved with a church like this that is committed to uh, the gospel, committed to world mission, and we're delighted to, to serve a local church like this and facilitating your sending out of your folk into various aspects of world mission. Well, today we're looking at Acts Thirteen, and uh, looking really at the first three, four verses of this chapter, Martin Lloyd Jones, who uh, many regard as one of the greatest preachers of the twentieth century, he he said this about the Book of Acts: "Live in that book, I exhort you. It is a tonic, the greatest tonic I know of in the realm of the spirit." And so I I hope today that this will be something of a tonic for you because we're spending today in the book of Acts and preaching again this evening uh, also from the book of Acts. And I trust that it will be a tonic both for you and me as we spend some time in this wonderful part of Scripture. Well, this morning we're asking, what are the marks of a missional church? A church that engages in mission across the street and across the world? What characterizes that kind of church? And to answer that question, we're looking at Acts 13, where we find ourselves at a key turning point in the expansion of the church. We have the beginning, really, of what is the next stage uh, uh, of the missionary expansion of the church, The move from the Jewish world into the Greco-Roman world. From the center of Christianity being very much Jerusalem to it now moving to Antioch. And here we've got the first really intentional planned efforts at cross-cultural overseas mission by a church. So it's a key part in the book. But let's just think about where that church was located in the first century, in that city of Syrian Antioch. What kind of place was Antioch? Well, it was a melting pot of peoples and cultures. It was overcrowded, living conditions were cramped, and race riots were common. And in this fascinating book, uh, The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark, I highly recommend this book. I don't think that Rodney Stark's a committed Christian, but what he tells us here about the first century world and about the rise of Christianity is is, is gripping stuff. It's very, very helpful in giving us background to uh, books like Acts. And he says in this book, any accurate portrait of Antioch in New Testament times must depict a city filled with misery, uh, danger, fear, despair, and hatred. And into this city, according to Acts 11, came Jewish Christians escaping the systematic persecution of Saul and in the midst of their own crisis and their own experience of social upheaval, they remained gospel people and they engaged in bold, creative evangelism. And the church grew, and, and it became the birthplace, eventually, of, of, of cross-cultural worldwide mission. So what can we observe about this mission-minded congregation? Well, I'm ambitiously trying to tend to get through six points this morning. So point number one, you'll notice that this was a church grounded in the scriptures. Now if you would turn back, please, to Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. You'll find that Barnabas and Saul spent a whole year teaching great numbers of people. And and I think, undoubtedly I think, that that teaching, it must have been along the lines of what Luke sets out at the end of his first volume. The end of the first volume of Luke's two volume work, Luke 24, where Jesus himself teaches his disciples about the nature and the extent of of God's mission. There in Luke 24, verses 46 to 47, Jesus takes the whole of the Hebrew scriptures and he says, Look, if you want to understand them properly, you've got to interpret them in such a way that they're all pointing to the Messiah, to me, to Jesus, and to the mission of God that flows out of his life, death, and resurrection. That's the way to understand the scriptures. And, I, 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 and I, can, I can picture Barnabas and Saul uh, giving them this extended mission explored course over a year and helping them get to grips with the scriptures, helping them get to grips with what it means to be the people of God and to take this message of good news to the nations. And I, I, I can picture them uh, helping the Antioch church to understand that witnessing to the saving power of the gospel was something that should happen among all nations and that God's worldwide mission is central to the message of the Bible and essential in the life of the church. Before I left Malaysia, uh, my wife and I worked in Malaysia for uh, 10 years and shortly before leaving in 2009, I found an old pamphlet in the OMF office in Kuala Lumpur And uh, it was written for OMF Malaysia by the late Scottish preacher James Philip. And uh, it's a rather old, tattered thing, but I found it to be uh, dynamite, really. Great stuff. We wouldn't really print these sorts of pamphlets nowadays. It's incredibly wordy, and there's not a single picture or graphic in the whole thing. But um, it's got great stuff in it. And and, and Jim Philip, he says this, It is relevant to notice that the first great missionary outreach began from the church at Antioch, a church deeply taught in the word. It is always where there is a true and faithful ministry of the word that the Holy Spirit speaks to thrust men and women out into the work of the gospel. Missionary outreach itself is the effect of something else. There was, in the early church, and there ought always to be a spontaneous power for expansion inherent in the living testimony of the gospel. I like that. A spontaneous power for expansion inherent in the living testimony of the gospel. And that's why as the people of God, we've got to keep coming back to this great gospel. God gives life, renewal, and growth to the church through his word, the Bible. And I, I very much feel I'm preaching to the converted here this morning. But the, but the nature and, and, and quality of a church's engagement with the Bible is crucial, and we all need to be reminded of that. And we've got to be engaging in mission with a solid grasp of the Bible a solid grasp of what the Bible story is all about. And you'll have heard the reports on Friday, I think, that the survey the Bible Society had put out about the, uh, the confusion that's out there amongst parents and kids about the Bible, the mix, you know, is Harry Potter stories getting mixed up with the Bible stories and all sorts of things out there. Chris Wright, who I think was here last year, he talks about how the Nike slogan just do it, seems to have been taken up by some forms of Christian mission. And he says, I was at a large mission mobilization congress where the slogan was, just go. And my first reaction was to say, just hold on. Uh, Even Jesus spent three years training his disciples before he told them to go. And even that was scarcely enough to radically reshape their scriptural understanding in the light of his own identity to understand where the biblical story was leading in relation to himself and the future of Israel and of the world. And Chris Wright says, how much more is such training needed when we hear that Bible reading and knowledge among evangelical Christians is at a shamefully low ebb? We might point the finger at parents and children out there in the wider UK society who don't really know the Bible, but I could take you to many churches that call themselves evangelical and they don't know their Bibles either. The Antioch church reminds us this morning that one of the marks of a missional church is that it gives priority, time, space to being attentive to God's word. Allowing that word to shape and transform our missional engagement with people around us and with the world in which we live in which we live. So, number 1, it's a church. It was a church grounded in the scriptures. Number 2, you'll notice that this was a diverse church with a diverse leadership team. The the city of Antioch was this melting pot of cultures and ethnicities. A city, uh, Rodney Stark says in this in this book, filled with hatred and fear rooted in intense ethnic an- antagonisms. And into that city entered the gospel of reconciliation lives were transformed and the first multi-racial church seems to have been birthed. Antioch was the perfect place for the church to demonstrate the reconciling power of the gospel in bringing men and women from all sorts of ethnic and racial and socio-economic backgrounds together in Christ. And when we look at the New Testament, if we just spent some time in the book of Acts itself, you see that the breaking down of the barriers that separate people in the world is an essential part of the gospel. And and that's very clear in in places like Ephesians 2. Evangelism includes the call to become part of God's new humanity, a people who find their identity in Christ rather than in ethnicity or uh, education or social status. And and for that reason, I suppose, I I personally have difficulties uh, with churches in diverse contexts that are planted just for one particular ethnic group or planted for people from a certain socioeconomic or cultural background because such a church then fails to demonstrate what uh, a reconciled community in Christ looks like. The church in Antioch was diverse. And that diversity is reflected in its leadership. You see that in verse one. You've got Paul and Barnabas, two Jews raised outside of Palestine and very familiar with the Greek world. There's two Africans, one of whom was black. And there's a high flyer society type chap as well who had connections with Herod's court. So this leadership team was Diverse ethnically and socioeconomically, and this is one of Luke's little emphases in his two-volume work. And you get into Acts, you, 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 get, the, you get the message from Luke uh, that wherever possible, churches should be socially and ethnically as diverse as the communities in which they are located, and that this should be reflected, when possible, in the leadership teams of congregations. The book of Acts encourages us to look for opportunities to demonstrate how in the body of Christ people from all sorts of backgrounds can work and, 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 and serve and lead and witness uh, together as a reconciled community. And that kind of integration has to be worked at. And, and there's a challenge here, I think, to the organizational cultures of our churches and organizations like OMF? Uh, Are we creating an environment that allows us to develop uh, leaders from groups that usually are not represented in leadership? Uh, And diversity is an issue for us as an organization. Um, So of course it's, it's difficult, I know, it's difficult. And coping with people who are different from me is difficult for me, and uh, it's going to be difficult for you too. Um, I, I must confess, I find living and studying uh, in England with English Christians in an English Bible college very different, very difficult for an Ulster, an Ulster Protestant evangelical. Uh, You've got a pub culture, which is very different from home. I was shocked to find my Bible college lecturer reading a Sunday newspaper. Um, But but it was very helpful to me because it it began to help me distinguish what was biblical about my discipleship and what was just cultural. And a whole lot of stuff that I thought was biblical was actually cultural. Um, and then I, I remember going on, on, on mission team experiences with, with operation mobilization and, 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 and being very challenged by hot tempered Italians, Koreans I just could not figure out, uh, even different conflicting strategies of how to do the washing up that almost split the team. Uh, you know, and then I joined OMF and OMF's got, uh, now has about 35 different nationalities. But let me say this, in OMF, we are committed to placing people in multicultural mission teams. Uh, that's the reality of what, what, what the Norgate family are encountering, so all sorts of nationalities and people in that team in Cambodia. And we're we intentional in doing that for three reasons, which I'm not going to unpack, but three good reasons for why we place people in multicultural teams. They provide a powerful witness to the gospel of reconciliation. Secondly, they provide a great context for growth and discipleship. And thirdly, they point to the kind of churches we'd love to see planted. Diversity, it's gotta be worked out though. Thirdly, you'll notice that this church was a worshiping church. Look at verses two and three. And when we look at those verses, there's, there's worship here that is attentive and responsive to God. And there's a sense of urgency, a sense of intensity with the references to fasting and prayer. And Luke's two volumes, throughout the gospel of Luke and throughout the book of Acts, Luke keeps making connections between prayer and mission. More than any other of the gospel writers, Luke goes out of his way to show us that Jesus was a man of prayer and in Acts, with all the focus on, on the dynamic of mission and the, and the action-packed events that, that, that see God's people on the move in the power of the Spirit, again and again, Luke underlines the importance of prayerful dependence on God's care and God's provision. And this was something that Hudson Taylor emphasized throughout his leadership. Hudson Taylor was the founder of the China Inland Mission which became the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, which is now boring old OMF International. Um, Hudson Taylor, he he laid great stress on relying not on our own strength, but trusting in uh, our Heavenly Father daily, moment by moment. Here's what he said. I myself, for instance, am not especially gifted, and I'm shy by nature, But my gracious and merciful God and Father taught me in my helplessness to rest on him and to pray even about little things in which another might have felt able to help himself. And from the beginning of the China Inland Mission, Hudson Taylor instructed new members to learn to move man through God by prayer. And we still believe that as an organization. Prayer was never meant to be incidental to the work of God it is the work in many ways it is and this is what we find in Acts a strong emphasis on prayer in seeking God's will in doing God's will in laying before God the the needs of the work at hand so in Acts 13 it wasn't the result of a SWOT analysis or some strategic planning meeting that led to the sending out and releasing of Barnabas and Saul into uh, this this key moment of mission. It was the result of leaders spending time in worship and prayer and in expectation of, of, of God and what he was going to do, and who were then prepared to lead their church and be obedient to the call of God and to be open to the surprises of cross-cultural mission and where that would take them. And and you can't read the book of Acts uh, and you can't read this chapter without noticing, uh, fourthly, that this was a church living in the power of the Spirit. You see that in verse two, the Holy Spirit says to the church, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. And in verse three, the church sends them on their way. And in verse four, they're sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. And I think it's important just to remind ourselves here that that Paul had already been called out for cross-cultural mission work. Uh, And and, and you'll see at the end of chapter 12, he's just come back from a mission. Um, But here in Acts 13, he and Barnabas are being set apart being set apart by the Spirit for a very particular role uh, in this next stage of the missionary expansion of the church. But I just want us to note also the partnership that's here uh, as the Holy Spirit brings things together. You you, you see, there's a lovely partnership between the church and the Holy Spirit. And I think John Stott puts it very helpfully. He says that the Spirit sent them out by instructing the church to do so and that the church sent them out having been been directed by the Spirit to do so. Uh, It's a nice way of looking at it. And I think these verses are a good reminder to us this morning that the the local church is the primary releaser, the primary sender of people into uh, world mission. I believe there's a place for mission societies and I never use the term uh, para-church. I think that's a very helpful term. I see organizations like OMF as part of uh, an expression of the wider church and we exist to serve and facilitate the local church as it engages in mission and it's all done under the direction of the Holy Spirit. It should be. We need to be dependent upon the Spirit's directing and empowering. And in fact, there are 56 references to the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Again and again, Luke provides example after example of what it means to be living in the power of the Holy Spirit. Someone has said that the Holy Spirit has been marginalized in the academy, in the theological college, and domesticated in the church. I think there's... A lot of truth in, in that. Uh, let me take you back to March 1892 because Hudson Taylor was very aware of cracking on with stuff without being dependent upon the Holy Spirit. He wrote a circular to all the members of the China Inland Mission. Few of us, he said, perhaps are satisfied with the results of our work. And some may think that if we had more or more costly machinery, we should do better. But oh, I feel it is divine power we want, and not machinery. The temptation to rely on on method and machinery and strategy and resources rather than on God continues to be one of the, one of the most powerful temptations for the modern missionary movement and for the 21st century church. Churches that experience spiritual vitality, says Samuel Escobar from Latin America, churches that experience spiritual vitality are able to assess the work, the, sorry, to able to assess the world and its missionary needs, to discern the missionary thrust of, of Christian truth and to create the structures that will allow mission to happen. But if we're to have that kind of, that kind of assessment, that kind of discernment, that kind of creativity, we, we need the Holy Spirit to empower our ministry and our work as individuals and as a church. Fifthly, we're almost there. The Antioch church was a church committed to the body of Christ. And again, if you, if you come back to Acts chapter 11, And verses 27 to 30, we read there about a famine and of the particular needs of the church in Jerusalem. The church in Antioch became the first church to help uh, care for the needs of the Jerusalem church. And in doing so, they demonstrated their commitment to the body of Christ, even to a church that was culturally and socially different from them. And I think that's a reminder of, of what is a, A New Testament principle that Christian community across cultural barriers is essential to Christian commitment. Christian community across cultural barriers. uh, OMF tries to facilitate that sense of community, that sense of solidarity. Uh, We see ourselves very much as as a bridge uh, between your congregation here and the congregations in, say, Cambodia. We, we see ourselves as trying to hook up the, the churches here in the UK with, with the body of Christ in East Asia to cultivate that sense of understanding. What does it mean to follow Jesus in Cambodia today? What is the state of the church in North Korea today? How can we stand alongside the people of God in other parts of the world? Uh, the, the, the Cape Town commitment, I think, puts it very well. Love calls for solidarity. Loving one another includes especially caring for those who are persecuted and in prison for their faith and witness. If one part of the body suffers, all parts suffer with it. We are all, like John, companions in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. And that solidarity takes different forms, it does. (laughs) From praying for the world uh, to giving financial help and assistance to ministries in other parts of the world and to, to, to sending out your best people into various ministries around the world. And that brings me to the last point because this church in Antioch was prepared to release its best people into world mission. Barnabas and Paul were valued members of the church in Antioch. Uh, they were key people in the leadership team in Antioch and this was a young church there was tons of ministry to be done to be done there in Antioch but the church released these gifted experienced leaders into cross-cultural ministry and that must have been a very costly thing for the church to do you know a little bit about that you've sent people off You've done church plants. You know what it's like when your congregation—you congregation. You find, you're trying to find musicians. You're trying to find people to lead. You're trying to do stuff. It's costly when you release people and start new things and get involved in ministry. No doubt. Some years ago, Michael Griffiths, who was general director for OMF uh, back in the 70s, 80s, he wrote a little book called Get Your Church Involved in Mission. And he says in this little book, It cannot escape the attention of a careful reader of the New Testament that those who were sent out as missionaries by those first century congregations were themselves already experienced Christian workers. This would suggest that when we are seeking to discover which persons in our congregations might have the greatest contribution to make overseas, the person concerned is probably not some presently insignificant student studying at a Bible college, apologies to any insignificant students studying at Bible College but rather someone who is already prominent and active as a leader in the work of your congregation it is someone you would all miss if they are to make a contribution in another culture we must be certain first that they are able to make an effective contribution in their own if you don't miss them we don't want them send us your cream not your dregs (laughs) I love it it's true but you've done that. And, 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 and here at Fullwood, you're a wonderfully mission-minded congregation. And you have sent your cream into cross-cultural mission. And you have partnered with OMF and other organizations uh, to, to support your cross-cultural workers in ways that, that really few other congregations that I've seen actually do. And so I'm here this morning to say a, a massive thank you But also to encourage you to keep coming back to scriptures like these. To keep coming back to questions like that. Why has God placed us as a community at this time, in this neighborhood, in this city, in this country, in this world? What's it all about? Why are we here? Because there's many churches and they've forgotten that question. And they don't know why they're here. And they meet on a Sunday and they've lost the plot. And the numbers are falling and no wonder because the purpose has somehow disappeared. Let's keep coming back to these, to these scriptures. And, and as you contemplate these sorts of questions, as you come back to these sorts of scriptures, the answers you get will, will mean that not just some But all of us will be engaged in some way in God's mission. Be that across the street or across the world. And may God give us his grace and strength and the empowering of his spirit to be all that he calls us to be and do. Today, this week, and this year and beyond. Amen.